Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Let's get to it. All right. So, um, yeah, we only have a, a, a few. Um, you know, like I said, just reading comic books. Yeah, school started up for me again, and I, uh, I, I, I wasn't going to TA this quarter, and then at the very last minute, they called me in to do so, so that uh, has taken up a, a fair amount of my time. Um, yeah, I, like, I, like, I, like, I, like I've said the past few movie journals, I'm trying to catch up on a stack of unread trades mm-hmm. that, I, that I have, and so um, this week I read uh, just a two-trade, 12-episode, uh, all-new Ultimates, which I got into mm-hmm. a very long text conversation with our friend Dan, Dan Gavazdan from yeah. Superior Spider Talk uh, uh, about, but um, uh, maybe we can save that... Uh, uh, I'll tell that story. <laughs> we can save it for the main episode sure. because we hung out with Dan at WonderCon a little bit. So let's just talk about the movies we saw. Okay. I saw a dreadfully boring movie. Okay. Like sometimes the worst movies are the ones that are not like, uh, or the worst movies to sit through aren't the ones that are like consistently egregiously bad. They're just the ones that are like thoroughly competent and uninspired. Do you yes. know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. So I saw a Scottish movie <clears throat> called Tommy's Honor. Okay. Uh, three guesses as to how honor is spelled. <laughs> O-N space H-E-R. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's the version that'll be coming to, uh, you know, DVD and VHS. No, um, I do love the idea that uh, <laughs> porn producers are going like super obscure now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, this is a, a movie that's coming out soon. Um, it is the based on the true story of uh, Tommy Morris, Tommy Morris Jr., who is, um, I guess, to this day considered one of the great golfers of all time. Okay, um, and his father, Tommy Thomas Morris Sr., um, who is considered uh, the founding father of golf. Mm-hmm. Even though golf is very, very old, I guess it wasn't until like the mid to late 1800s that the sort of rules and protocols of golf as we now know it uh, came to be. And um, Tom Morris Sr., played here by Peter Mullen, who was an actor I always like. Um, uh, you definitely know I Peter know. Mullen. I can't play. I've heard the name many times. I can't play him. Uh, sure. I first knew him as Mother Superior from Trainspotting. Okay, yes. Um, he was also in uh, Young Adam, I think, uh, with Hugh McGregor, also with Hugh McGregor. Um, but he's been in a bunch of stuff. It's M-U-L-L-A-N. Right. Um, anyway. Yeah, well, I want, actually, I want you to look him up because I want to know what you... What, what, what you I go, would know him from? Oh, what, yeah, I want you to say, oh, I know him from blank. Let's take a look. He's in a... Well, okay, I don't know him from Hercules. Uh, I do. But apparently he was in that. Uh, you know, it's weird as I'm scrolling down, he's in a lot of stuff. I haven't, uh, got it. What? Harry Potter. Oh, who is he in Harry Potter? Death Eater Yaxley. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. Okay. Yes. I, that sounds familiar. So anyway, this is just a, uh, so, so this Tommy Morris senior or junior, he's an incredibly talented young golfer, but he, he's raised by a guy who basically is a tradesman. You know, he, uh, Tom Morris senior is someone who, makes golf clubs for a living designs golf courses, which is not a, I, I think now 
in, in nowadays that's that's a, a high-end job designing golf courses yeah uh but he does that and he caddies for the rich like essentially aristocrats who are members of the club mm. where he where he works and this being you know the um 18 1860s and 1870s tommy morris jr is sort of expected to follow in the footsteps of his father and right. you know he's a great golfer but that's never going to make him a great man i guess in terms yeah. of the class structure uh the class structure here represented mostly by a uh, character played by sam neal hey all right um uh and so tommy morris jr goes uh basically the scottish version of i don't want your life yeah and decides <laughs> um no, I'm the greatest golfer there is. I'm going to turn this into a career. And so the movie, I guess, essentially posits that Tommy Morris Jr. is the person who invented the idea of a professional golfer being not just a tradesman like a blacksmith or whatever, which sure. is what a professional golfer was uh, at the time, but being someone who could afford to be, you know, um, upwardly mobile socially and, uh, and, and buy a house and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's that perfectly interesting. interesting yeah. It's an interesting story, and nothing about the movie is bad. It's just that nothing about the movie is unexpected at all. Yeah, and it's you know, it's I think just shy of two hours feels like it's two hours and forty minutes long because yeah. it doesn't have any spark to it. Yeah. Um, uh, the director's name is something. Uh, I'm forgetting his first name now. Something Connery, as in Sean Connery. Okay. He is, uh, I think, the son of Sean Connery. Oh, neat. Um, uh, and uh, I, just, I, I, I can't, unless you're really in, and here's, I'm someone who actually is interested in golf history. I tend sure. to like movies like the Bill Paxton movie, the greatest game ever played. Right. Um, uh, I tend to like movies about old timey golf for some reason. There are even moments of legend of Bagger Vance that I think are, are interesting, at least from it. Like you get, frankly, you get Bagger Vance out of there and have it just <laughs> be this like golf tournament between these three guys. And I'm actually much more interested. You, you obviously remember legend of Bagger Vance better than I, I, I remember Br- Bruce McGill's in there. I see. I don't, that, that's one of those movies that I know that I have seen. Mm. I couldn't really tell you any, describe any scene of the movie. Like, yeah, uh, it just didn't stick with me, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's Tommy's honor. I don't need to okay. spend too much time on it because I do want to spend some time on the next movie I watched, which okay. is a movie that I used to see. Uh, maybe you've had uh, an experience like this where when a movie came out when you were a kid, mm-hmm. but it was like rated. Well, I don't know if your parents, your parents were strict, right? About ratings. To yeah. Some extent. Up, up to a point. Yeah. Um, weirdly I would think because your parents were more religious than mine, mm-hmm. I guess I would think that your parents would be stricter, but I think my parents were stricter. I think they were as or well. My mom, especially actually, I think my, my dad was a little, had a little more leeway, but yeah. Um, my parents both loosened up pretty early, uh, when they saw the movie. I remember, I think I was 13 or 14. I've said, I think I've said this before that my mom, when she realized that the rated R movies I was interested in were, you know, reversal of fortune. I think that's when they realized <laughs> this will probably be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but I don't know if you had this experience of there being a movie that you'd see TV commercials for when you were a kid that you'd be like, I want to see that movie. Yes. And, and this will be, again, this is not, my thing is not going to be some like hard R action movie or whatever. The movie I really wanted to see, but couldn't that came out when I was seven or eight. Okay. Mike Nichols postcards from the edge. I loved the commercial because of the surreal. Did you remember the, the, the cliff thing? 
Uh, it's at the edge of a building, actually. Edge of not building. A okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, where she appears to be hanging off the edge of the building, but then like is she's just laying on her stomach because yeah. she's making a movie, so she like lifts her hands off yeah. the edge of the building. Um, and I found that so inventive and funny that I really wanted to see it. And then they kind of I never got around to it. And then with Carrie Fisher dying mm-hmm. somewhat recently, um, because it's based on um, her her novel i guess it's not really a memoir it's based on her life but i guess yeah is that called a romana clef is that what that means oh gosh i don't actually know when something's not it's too fictionalized to be a memoir but it's still heavily based on the author's life i think that's what it's called okay um anyway uh and carrie fisher also uh adapted she wrote the screenplay for it as well um uh so i had renewed interest in in watching it um it's actually playing at the tcm film festival this weekend which oh, i'm going to but i was like ah, there's other stuff i want to see I'll, I'll i'll scratch this one off the list now and i'll see other stuff at the tcm film fest mm-hmm. um but it is a it is a terrific terrific movie um that actually uses i think there's some there's something that happens in and that that scene that we're talking about that was in the commercials is indicative of something that happens throughout the movie of showing you something that looks like one thing and then you realize, oh, this is a movie set, you know, something. And that's yeah. that's actually how the movie starts out, is in the middle of a shot that you don't realize until Meryl Streep blows a line and then yeah. looks right at the camera and goes, fuck. <laughs> then, then suddenly you're like, wait, what was that? And then you realize, oh, she's an actress doing a take. That's fun. Um, Who directed uh, Mike Nichols, you said? Mike Nichols directed it, yeah. Nice. Uh, but, like, I think there's something... A lot of movies that are that take place around the making of movies... I think use that kind of stuff or even if it's just like the, uh, which this movie even has that sort of idea of like, uh, Oh, here's the spaceman and the centurion walking to lunch together. Yeah, yeah. It's always a centurion or whatever, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and sometimes like a showgirl <laughs> sure, yeah. is walking along. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I remember this side, a uh, little tangent here. When I was, um, a PA on Beowulf, the Robert Zemeckis film. Sure. Uh, we were on the same lot as, do you remember the show Las Vegas with, uh, Josh Demel and yes. James Conn? Um, which do you remember the name of the casino? I can't remember the name of the casino. I don't, but that was, it was actually, I actually did once like the security guard, like let us into their soundstage when they weren't shooting, which is mm. just, you walk in off of, it was like the, the scenes in postcard scenes I'm talking about. You're in one reality where you're on just this like yeah. you know this studio lot. That's the uh, the Culver Studios, uh, formerly the Thomas Ince Studios, going all the way back to oh. the 20s and 30s, um, uh, where they uh, which then became the Zanuck. You know, it's where so it's where King Kong was shot, and then it's where uh, lots of Gone with the Wind was shot. It's a very mm-hmm. historic place. Anyway, so you're on this lot, and then you walk up a ramp and through like these big like loading doors, and suddenly you're just in a Las Vegas casino. Yeah. Uh, it's very it was very surreal anyway that's how i felt real quick that's how i felt about like uh you watch behind the scenes footage of the shining and you see people walking around on a soundstage and then they turn a corner and they're in the maze the hedge maze and it looks like they they have stepped into the hedge maze right like it's lit in that way as well yeah yeah uh and it's just like oh this is very jarring to see but the thing that was funny to me is the the extras essentially holding pen, which is what it was. It was just like a half shaded, roped off area where they kept the extras for Vegas for Las Vegas. Um, uh, was right across from our um, the soundstage we were on for for Beowulf. And if you can imagine, the people who are extras for Las Vegas are, pe- are, are people who are dressed like they're going out, like they're in like right. short, you know, sequin dresses or like you know, flashy suits with you know, popped collars or whatever. And they're just like 
the most mundane, just these people just hanging out. Like, <laughs> not even, this is 2005, so they're probably not even checking their phones. They're just like hanging out, looking at, you know, reading whatever, talking. It's just like yeah. in, in the sun all day, waiting, to, you know, to go uh, be a part of the nightlife. Anyway, okay. So you see this kind of stuff in lots of movies that are about the making of movies. But Postcards from the Edge is about a woman who um, has, at the beginning, she um, overdoses and then she goes to um, to to rehab um, and then she gets out of rehab and um, she is essentially unemployable because of insurance risks because right. of uh, her drug problems. And so she gets hired to be in this one movie. That's the movie where she's playing the cop hanging off the edge of the building. Yeah. Um, um, that's kind of a weird, like running gag. Every time we see her do a shot from one of these movies, do a scene from one of these movies, it's her character in mortal danger. <laughs> like, um, anyway, um, so she gets this movie, but, uh, the insurance, um, won't, uh, the the movie the the insurance company won't insure her unless she is living with a guardian even though she's a you know a woman in her mid to late 30s at this point um she essentially has to move back in with her mother yeah played by Shirley MacLaine modeled on obviously Debbie Reynolds right. um and so uh this is the emotional and psychological tumult that she's in at the time and so i feel like Mike Nichols repeating this motif of you're looking at one thing, you're looking at what looks like a desert, you know, and then suddenly a door like in the middle of the sky opens up and you realize, Oh, that's just the back of the soundstage. This is all indoors or whatever. Or there's another one where like Dennis Quaid's character looks like he's standing on a suburban street in front of like a picturesque suburban house with like flowers, you know, all over the the veranda or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then a truck pulls away and you realize that, that, that house is on the track and it pulls away and he's just standing in the middle of a gigantic parking lot. Yeah. Um, that I, I feel like Mike Nichols is using that to illustrate how this character, Suzanne, um, is her grip on reality at this point is tenuous. Her life yeah. keeps slipping out from under her. She's not living her own life. She's living her mother's life or the life that the insurance companies, uh, companies want. And I think, um, this stuff that has been hackneyed in other movies, the, this this depiction of uh, what it's like to be on a movie set, uh, it actually serves a thematic purpose here. Um, and uh, it's a delightful movie. Meryl Streep is terrific. Shirley MacLaine, oh my God, she's amazing. Yeah. Um, you've also got um, uh, Dennis Quaid has a fairly sizable part, and then uh, you've got uh, Gene Hackman and Richard Dreyfuss. And, wow, uh, I did not know the cast got, was that big. Um, yeah, R- Richard Dreyfuss is a pretty small role. And then you've got um, what I would say cameos, but I think two of these people weren't really famous at the time, and one of them, you know, arguably isn't famous, but only is to people like us. Right. But you've got a, a scene where there are three producers on the movie that she's in, um, and they each come up to her individually to tell her the same thing when she's on a set. Yeah. And they're played by Rob Reiner is the first one who was okay. famous at that time. Then Oliver Platt and okay. then, uh, Anthony held. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so all three of them in short succession, like come up to her and like have the same private conversation. Essentially. Yeah. Uh, it's a really, really great, really great movie. Um, so what did you watch? All right. So unfortunately, I only watched one movie. I mean, that's not necessarily true because I'm TAing for this film history class again. So I'm watching movies that I talked about 10 weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I'm not going to talk about yeah. those. Uh, but I did watch John Gunn's The Case for Christ. Okay. All right. Based on Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. 
Um, it is the, the story, it is Strobel's own story, uh, in which he was this, uh, reporter for the Chicago Tribune whose wife, and he was a very ardent, uh, atheist and his wife became a Christian and he, uh, it caused a great deal of marital strife between the two of them. And he decided to, uh, look into this so that he could disprove it so that she could go back to being what she was. And, uh, Mm. along the way, uh, he talked to, enough people and heard enough stuff that he's like, Oh shoot. You know what? I think I might believe in this too. So, um, it's a, it's an interesting book. Uh, the book is, is less of a biography, uh, an autobiography and more just like his findings, but, okay. but in adapting it and by, you know, co-opting the very well-known title among certain, uh, Christian communities, um, you know, it's, uh, it's like the Facebook movie, you know? Um, oh, right. I see. Yeah. So, or, uh, yeah. The movie is very good, surprisingly. Really? Yeah. I was, I went in honestly expecting, expecting it to be exactly what they always are. Yeah. Uh, and what I got was a film that like, in which the actors are all, uh, among the, in the cast is Erica Christensen mm-hmm. as uh, his wife. Um, Mike Vogel. Scientologist, played- right? Is she? I don't know. I think she is. Um, Mike Vogel, uh, who's been in a bunch of stuff. I didn't necessarily recognize him from anything. He's been in stuff I've seen, but I don't really, really remember him. Um, Robert Forster is in it. Uh, oh. Faye Dunaway. Uh, and uh, uh, Frankie Faison is in it. I like him. And, But it's the writer of that movie Captive with David Oyelowo. And um, was it Rooney Mara? Or was it Kate Mara? I think it's Kate Mara. Okay. I never um, saw it. And I know that that was, a, that was a Christian movie as well. And by all accounts, that movie was actually quite good. I actually, I meant to see it, but I didn't. Um, it's, a, it's a real movie in a lot of ways. And I would say the thing that made the difference for me was the arguments between uh, Lee Strobel and his wife. I have seen Fireproof. I have seen War Room. I have seen movies where character, where married people argue. Mm-hmm. Now, I've argued with my wife, and uh, I don't like doing it. Uh, I prefer not to do it if I can. Um, because it's, and I've also, you know, I heard my parents argue every once in a while. I've, I've seen other married couples argue. It's always uncomfortable, at least. But then you watch Fireproof and you watch War Room, you watch those arguments, they feel very safe and very sanitized. And they just don't, f- it's, it's not honest. Yeah. These movies are often not emotionally honest. Whereas The Case for Christ, those arguments feel very real. I was very uncomfortable watching them. And I like that in this Christian film, you would think that the film is going to side with her. It doesn't. She says dumb things. Like she, she says, she says things that can be very easily taken the wrong way. Like she describes becoming Christian says like, you know, it's, it's like the best thing that's ever happened to me. Well, if you say that to your spouse, Mm -hmm. that can be a little rough. Mm -hmm. 
and he and he takes it that way and i don't think he's necessarily wrong to take it that way and she immediately realizes like that's hang on that's not what i meant like she she has a hard time articulating what she is believing which is something that characters in christian films they never have a hard time articulating what they believe because that's what the movie is all about right and so but but on top of everything else you know he's going from one expert to another and they're explaining these things and because he is a reporter, because he is actively pursuing this, because he is investigating and he knows what questions to ask, when these when these other characters just present him with stuff that you will find in the book, it doesn't seem artificial to me. It feels in many ways like JFK. JFK is just nothing but people spouting information. Right. This is like that. Um, it sounds, it does sound interesting. It is interesting. And I would love to know what a non-Christian thinks. I think every Christian could, should go and see it because it will let you know, it will let you know how to, how good a, a film. I mean, it's, it's, it's produced by pure flicks that make God's not dead, which I hate. <laughs> I was not expecting this to be good, mm-hmm. but now in a few weeks, I'm going to be at the international Christian film festival and I'm going to be able to tell these people, see the case for Christ. It is a genuinely, I won't say great. There's, there's some flaws obviously, but like it is a genuinely good movie. It's shot well, it's structured well, and they allow all of their characters to be people because both the, the husband and wife, they sort of have their own mentors, uh, which will often happen in movies like this, by the way. Um, and, uh, the wife's mentor is played by, uh, shoot. She was on lost. She was uh, Bernard's wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rose. Yeah. Um, Is it like L. Scott Caldwell? Caldwell. That yeah. sounds right to me. Um, so she's she's the the wife's mentor, and then the then Lee Strobel's mentor is like a guy who uh, who is also a reporter, a guy who's who just sort of uh, helped him out in, throughout his career, and is also a very strong atheist himself. And you think he's going to be pretty arrogant and in some ways he is but no more arrogant than anybody any other like academic um and when it comes right down to it like the the wife's mentor says you know what maybe you're not not actually listening to what your husband is saying maybe you're so busy trying to convince him of this thing that he should take you seriously that you're not actually hearing what he's saying so she's literally saying hey you christian you know how you you know how you think you're doing the right thing you're actually not doing it the right way Mm flip side of that the the atheist mentor says hey you know we believe what we believe she believes what she believes but when it comes right down to it she is your wife and you still need to love her and and just like and he's saying stuff that frankly atheist characters in these types of movies don't say Mm -hmm. it's so refreshing and for and in many ways it's very well written um and and i think it's i think it's uniformly well acted um and i i'd really be curious to know what the how the i think the christian community will respond will respond very favorably and i think this movie really raises the bar i would be curious to know what the non what non-christians think of this now, film you're posting a review on battleship retention yes are you going to title the review the case for the case for christ <laughs> <sighs> No, okay. I feel like I try to avoid stuff. Like, I try to avoid uh, in like our, our titles. I try to avoid any, any words that overlap with the actual right. thing. But at the same time, that right, that writes itself. Yeah. Cause um, that's what you've done here. You've made the case yeah. for the case for Christ. It's, it was, 
you know what? I was working when I started watching it and then I stopped. It got, it, it actually kept me from doing other things because I realized like this is well acted enough. It's well written enough. I found myself thinking like I should pay attention to how it's shot because it is now a real movie to me. Mm-hmm. And I was, I wouldn't say I was blown away, but I was very surprised and who knows, maybe, maybe, you know, non-Christian listeners will listen, will, will watch it and say, you know, this is ridiculous. The, the case that is being made, that's fine. But the way I see it, people probably watched JFK and said, these theories are ridiculous, right? But that doesn't change the movie. Yeah. Maybe because they are. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. And so I, I think it could be that. And by humanizing so many of these other characters, I think it, uh, I think it does a, 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 it's a huge leap forward in, in this community. I'm very excited it happened that it came out right before the Christian, uh, the International Christian Film yeah. Festival. So it gives me something to talk about. All right. Um, I saw a movie. Uh, speaking of movies that uh, you, you went and go into not thinking that are going to be good, I, I saw a movie that I was, I was underestimating, uh, a documentary I was underestimating because it has a dumb title. Okay. Um, it's called Tickling Giants. It's a bad title, <laughs> right? Uh, once you see the movie, it makes sense, yeah. but it's it's not a very good title. Yeah, it's it'd be a bad title for anything. An album, a kid's book, mm-hmm. a movie. Yeah. I don't like it. Uh, but here's what it's about. It's a documentary about a guy named Bassem Youssef, who is um, known to, to those outside of his own country who know him. They know him as the Egyptian John Stewart. Okay. Because a- after the uh, Arab Spring and the Tahrir Square protests, when uh, President Hosni Mubarak stepped mm-hmm. down, um, suddenly there was more freedom of expression than Egypt had had in decades. Yeah. Um, longer than, you know, most of the, um, populace knew of. And there's this guy, uh, Bassem Youssef, I should say, Dr. Bassem Youssef. He's a heart surgeon hmm. who, um, is a big fan of the daily show and felt very strongly about, um, what was going on in his country and started a, a YouTube show that was just him talking about the news in a John Stewart type way. It became massively successful and he got his own TV show. Um, uh, and so he did this show for years, but, uh, what the movie, what the movie really succeeds at is that it is only nominally about Bassam Youssef. Really what it's about is this sort of, chronicle of egypt as a country since mubarak stepped down yeah because it suddenly had democracy it had again i'll use the word nominally again it had nominally had democracy before but uh, hasmi mubarak tended to win with 98 percent of the vote type yeah. of sure, you know, sure. in yeah, quotes yeah. um so they had actual democracy all of a sudden and they elected uh, another guy named morsi Um, but then everyone hated him too, or the country became very divided and most people hated him. And, uh, Basim Yusuf became even more of a star because he was speaking out against this guy. Yeah. Right. Um, as, as the tide was turning and then this guy ended up getting removed from power. I'm not sure how much you, I I sort of loosely followed this while it was going on, but, um, we could all as Americans probably do a better job of keeping track of what's going on in other parts. I remember the the name Mubarak. Uh, yeah, I remember Morrissey because mostly because I remember Paul Goebel making Morrissey jokes. Uh, No question about Um, it. I made a couple in my mind just now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but then what happened is the military was in charge and then the, the, head of the military 
uh, El Sisi stepped down from the military to run for president and became president. And he apparently, one thing I learned from this documentary and from the Q and a after, um, Egyptians tend to take pride in and value their military more than almost any other aspect of the country. And so Mm -hmm. this guy was, you know, the opposite of how people turned against Morsi. Everyone immediately was like, we love Sisi. He's like Eisenhower. (laughs) Uh, I'm not even joking. Like people were very excited at the notion of Eisenhower being president. Right. Except Sisi is, uh, essentially as much of a dictator and a strong man oh. as Mubarak was Got and it. quickly starts, uh, these, you know, pe- there start being acts of violence on the part of the military, military, um, to quell protests. And then that freedom of speech that they were enjoying seems to be slipping away. Ugh. Um, uh, and it's not just that, that CC is trying to shut down Basim Youssef's show it's that because so much of the populace is on board with this guy, because during the whole Morsi reign, you know, I say reign during his presidency, the country was very unstable. There was a lot of violence. And this guy, Sisi, for whatever he's doing that's awful and totalitarian, he is bringing more stability to the country. And so the the, the people who are comfortable with that start being start demonstrating and protesting against Basim Youssef and uh yeah protests in Egypt it seems uh are not exactly like you know it's not like the uh you know clever signs and pink hats we get at the protests here right. it's like literally calling for the execution of Basim Youssef yeah. um outside of the the studio uh where, where he films uh, his show um it's a really fascinating documentary. Um, yeah. and there's a whole, a, a bunch of other things about it that I'm, you can, you can read my review on the website and I hope you do because I, uh, went into more detail than I, um, have time to hear, but you learn a lot and, um, uh, you, you sort of also, I think it's unfortunately timely, um, you know, that we now, have a um uh a head of state here in the u.s who has uh some tendencies toward authoritarianism and and fascist statements um you know i mean so far luckily knock on wood our institutions have kept him from being fascist in practice but that's you know we can't we can't assume that's going to hold true forever. And what tickling giants ends up really being about is, um, uh, it's sort of a two, um, a a double edged point, um, that sort of works in tandem, but also sort of seems counterintuitive Mm -hmm. that the idea that comedy is a very effective weapon against this sort of thing. Yes. But, and also maybe part of the reason that it is so effective is that, um, the very idea of the person in power being bothered by and taking on someone who's joking about them, it makes them look worse. Yes. Do you know what I mean? And that's yes. part of why it's so strong because they're wrong for taking it seriously. And that makes it more serious. It's sort of this weird, like, uh, yeah. um, what's what I'm looking for? Not conundrum, but what's it called? Paradox. Sure. 
it's like a paradoxical thing. Um, and, uh, it, that, that's maybe the biggest takeaway of the movie. I mean, not that the guy, uh, he's a decent, he's, you know, he's a heart surgeon. He's a decent comedian, right? He's not, you know, he's not that funny, but then again, you know, neither is John Stewart really <laughs> like John Stewart can be funny, but I feel like the people who tuned into the daily show every day and loved John Stewart, like they seem pretty eager to laugh, <laughs> but I'm saying his ability to make them laugh was kind of secondary to why they're like, you know, sure. he, he represented a certain voice and it was, and the fact that it's sarcastic and, um, sardonic and satirical, um, is important. Even if, you know, there are other people, you know, like the onion or whatever can be funnier, sure. um, day to day. Um, so that's kind of interesting that it's not really, uh, the point there is, uh, there's one part early on when he's before the, everyone's turned against him during, during the Morsi time, he goes, he does like a live for his show. He does like a mm-hmm. remote thing from one of the protests. And his, uh, his first update is, uh, he's like, uh, breaking update. The Kentucky fried chicken is closed. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it's right That's at the beginning of the movie. It's maybe like the biggest laugh that he got yeah. out of me. There's a, there's another, there's a handful of, of very funny parts. Um, John Stewart himself makes multiple appearances, uh, in, in the movie. Um, and it, um, it's interesting how this guy, Basim Yusef keeps, he looks up to John Stewart. John Stewart is, is his idol, but even John Stewart says like what I've, what I'm doing at the time, if he was still doing it, this, mm-hmm. you know, filmed before he, uh, retired from the show. He's like, what I'm doing has never gotten me into as much trouble as it's getting yeah. you into. Like, um, it's, it's an interesting dynamic between between the two because Boston Yusuf is a fan, but also someone that I think John Stewart comes to look up to quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, he's literally putting his life uh, at risk, um, both for his political ideals and just for comedy and making a good show. You get the impression, and I'm sort of colored by uh, you know this is a I went to the LA premiere. It was part of. Um, uh, it was at the Vista theater, but it was part of the, of a cine family presentation of they're doing like three months of like protest related movies. And mm. as part of that, they're doing the LA, they did the LA premiere this week of tickling giants. And so Boston Yusuf was there along with the, the, um, director, Sarah Taxler, uh, who's a daily show producer, by the way. Um, and the Q and a was moderated by Larry Wilmore, who is, he's funny and everything. Yeah, he's actually, he's not a good moderator. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, unfortunately, but, um, and I never found uh, him particularly funny either. I felt like yeah. he couldn't deliver. He couldn't really, he understood a good punchline, but I felt like he could never really land one. Um, but the, yeah, the, the thing that I learned from, from the movie and again, from the, the, the Q and a is how much Basim Yusuf cared about the show being good, not just about making yeah. a good point, but he like had this sort of showman's comedian, like, yeah. uh, like even when his, like people were literally shouting for his head outside of the studio, he was like, when the cameras are rolling, the only thing he was focused on was making the show good. Yeah. Um, it's inspiring uh, on yeah. a number of levels. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a really fantastic movie. It's a, it's an unfortunate title, but once you see the movie, the title makes more sense. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, I would definitely recommend people, uh, check it out. I also learned, I don't want to go on forever, but I also learned about, um, so, um, what Sarah Taxler did, the, the director is that I think was wise is that, you know, she's the director, she's an American, but she hired an entirely Egyptian crew. Mm. So she would every few months go to Egypt for a few weeks and, you know, get interviews and stuff. But also if something important were happening, Basim Yusuf and his team would like be like, Hey, there's something, you know, the, 
you know, the people who own the TV network or something like something's going to happen, uh, at tonight's show. And so she would like, you know, get in contact with her crew and essentially direct the movie over Skype yeah. from New York city uh, uh, while, while her crew was shooting it in Cairo and would actually conduct interviews with, with people over Skype. Yeah. Um, it's really, as a fascinating way of making a movie. That sounds great. Uh, yeah, it's really, it's really cool. Um, and it's in certain theaters, uh, th- this week. Okay. Uh, and then finally the last thing I watched just, this is just a, uh, you know, late night, um, Amazon rental, just something sure. that, is, that I'm meaning to get to. Cause here's what I've been trying to do. Cause I used to like, and maybe this is just me being nostalgic, but when I worked at, you know, we were in college together, we lived together and I worked at a video store. It meant that when I got off work at 11, I could take home any movie right. and just go home and watch it in the middle of the night. And I would often end up watching sort of middle of the road, new releases. Yeah. Like from like 2002 to 2004, I saw, mostly every movie it seemed it not really but it felt like that yeah. because i would just every night i would just take home something and sometimes it would be something i'd been only looking forward to and sometimes there wouldn't there'd just be a new release and be like oh, i'll check that out yeah. and so i've been trying to like catch up on some recent like uh you know now that you know you and i are critics and we're, we have you know certain obligations i feel like i see a lot of the big movies but there's a lot of these middle of the road movies right um that that passed me by. So this is a movie from 2014. It's the 2014 remake of About Last Night. Um, oh yes, yes, okay. Which I now that's a question because you and I talked about like referring to things as remakes when really they're the, they're just readaptations of source material. But I feel like the fact this that one, it's called About Last Night, yes, makes me think makes me think it needs to be categorized as a remake. So about last night, if people who don't know is a 1986 movie with Rob Lowe and Demi Moore and a couple other, because it's four yeah. people, uh, Jim Belushi and, uh, it's not Elizabeth Perkins, is it? I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember. Anyway, uh, that's, that's from 1986 and it's based on a 1974, I think play by David Mamet called yeah. sexual perversity in Chicago. Yeah. So the fact that they changed the name about last night, the fact that the movie, um, which is directed by Steve Pink, the guy who made hot tub time machine and hot tub time machine too. Um, <laughs> Uh, the movie is called about last night. It makes me think it's okay to refer to it as a remake. Um, but anyway, uh, it's thoroughly not bad. It's like yeah. professionally made. The, it's got a great cast. Um, you've got, uh, as the sort of main couple, I say main couple, we'll get to that in a second. You've got Michael Ely, an actor I've always been a fan of and joy Bryant. Um, and then the comic relief couple is Kevin Hart and, um, uh, Regina Hall. Is that mm. her name? Yeah, yeah that that's her right. Name, right? Yeah. Um, and I say, so technically Michael Ely and Joy Bryant are the main couple. They have the most of the screen time, but Kevin Hart and Regina call Regina Hall steal the show every chance they get. Yeah. Like I can imagine anyone who saw this movie two and a half years ago, whenever it came out, if they have memories of it, it's memories of Kevin Hart and Regina yeah. Hall. Cause they're, they're terrific and they're did, hilarious. I mean, did they, is it the mammoth script or did they No, add- it's, um, it's adapted by, uh, a screenwriter named Leslie Headland, who, okay. um, I know she directed a movie just last year, wrote and directed a movie last year with, um, uh, Jason Sudeikis and Alison Brie. I want to say it was called sleeping with other people. Does that sound right? That sounds I, right? I saw it. Yeah. Uh, and it's also thoroughly not bad. It seems like that's yeah. her wheel, we're her wheelhouse. Um, and yeah, it's not a, it's not a bad, bad screenplay. Um, and you've got, a great, you know, you've got those four actors are great. Plus you've got, uh, um, 
Christopher McDonald in a sort of thankless role, but you, it's good to have someone, uh, sturdy you know with char- yeah. with character and then you've got uh jello trulio in a uh, com- uh even further com- like kevin hart is the comic relief male comic relief that you think is cool jello no. trulio is their boss and he's the you know that's usually how that goes for him so yeah he, he's, he's like a little sort of like corporate yes man little shit but also no. like recognizes so michael ely and kevin hart's characters work together he's their mm-hmm. boss he's a little shit but also he knows they're cooler than he is and is always trying to be like oh yeah like you're coming to the com- comedy picnic right like trying it's it, it, oh it's it's a, sad uh, it's, a, it's a nice little performance from julia trulia um you know in in a way it is this this may sound strange but like it's a shame that they didn't go with the original Mammoth script because the original about last, about about last night did do that, and quite frankly, David Mamet writes for such like white working class characters <laughs> that it would be neat to oh, see his yeah. script, the script itself reinterpreted by the actors, like by African American actors. Um, I don't know. It's, hmm. I, I'm interested to see how malleable his material could be. Uh, yeah, um, there are a couple of. Inter- there's one part where uh, Michael Ely and Joy Bryan's characters are watching about last night. <laughs> wow! All right. <laughs> um, it's a very brief. Like if you if you didn't know, you wouldn't know. And yeah. then there's another part where um, Michael Ely and Kevin Hart are out on the town. And they're about to you know uh, start drinking for the night, and um, the movie takes place in Los Angeles, not in Chicago, okay. and. And Michael Lee says something like, here's to another night of sexual perversity in Los Angeles. That's nice. <laughs> it is nice, I guess. But I wonder like how that plays to someone who doesn't know that it's yeah. based on something called that. Anyway, um, here's the one thing I guess is a problem. Okay. In that, like a lot of, you know, I guess you'd call it a romantic comedy is this version of it. At least, um, the main couple has to fall apart before they can get back together. Yeah, of course. That's, but here's the thing. You and I have talked about this sort of thing, not just in romantic comedies, but in all sorts of these where the 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 breakup or whatever separates them is so cheap and manufactured. Right. It's just like, all right, let's just wait for them to get back together. I think <laughs> what's interesting about this about last night is it does such a good job of showing why these two, why the relationship falls apart and how it falls apart. Yeah. Uh, and how they become like bored of and sick with each is sick, bored with and sick of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, that when they start to get back together, a part of you is like, no, why? Like yeah. you're clearly not right for each other. <laughs> There's nothing false about this crisis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm glad I watched it. Uh, yeah. let's talk about some TV. All right. So, um, so obviously a uh, survivor and you can go and listen to uh, worth playing for, uh, it was a very interesting episode because, um, spoilers, if you haven't seen this week's episode and it is a big spoiler, um, so on this season was the only person that has ever won twice and she made it to, she got voted out this episode. She made it six episodes in, mm-hmm. which is more than anybody expected her to do because she, the way she wins is everyone just says, we'll get to her later. Mm hmm. And then you realize, oh, wait, she's there at the end. We can't get to her now. Uh, And so 
for six episodes, I guess for five episodes, that's what was happening. She just kept throwing shade on other people and get and convincing everyone like, yeah, you know what? That person's the threat. No, the person that, that won twice <laughs> by doing exactly what she's doing now. She's the threat. And so she finally did get voted out. But it was a it was a very interesting uh, episode. And she was like fighting until the very last. And she was just like manipulating people. And it actually looked for a moment like she was actually going to do this shit again. Uh, it was it was pretty uh, amazing uh, on a number of levels. But anyway, so that was Survivor. Uh, the show continues to be solid. Um, I watched The Critic again, okay. uh, watching some episodes of that. And uh, pretty much all the episodes are available on YouTube now. And um, and uh, there was a good episode with uh, Jay's father mm-hmm. and his mother where they get uh, they're they're on a plane and they crashes on a desert island oh, and they, yeah. they they rekindle their love. That's the one with the penguins can't fly joke, right? Yes. That I made that, that I referenced last week. But the the thing that leads up to that is it's such a wonderful lead up that I actually don't penguins can't fly is funny, but it's when he he opens up the door to the cockpit and he goes he's like and he sees that the pilot is a penguin. <laughs> he goes a penguin. And then he reaches down and pulls up a bottle of uh, whiskey and goes, and he's been drinking <laughs> that. And he's been drinking and he just says, it's so like shame on you, penguin, man, that <laughs> shit is funny. Um, anyway, so, okay. Uh, and then I did watch on Netflix. I watched Louis CK's latest standup special, which is just called 2017, 2017. And I think it's pretty solid in a lot okay. of ways. And I will say, oddly enough, he he literally the first thing out of his mouth is talking about abortion. Mm-hmm. And though he is undoubtedly pro-choice, he verbalizes the pro-life stance better than almost anybody I've ever heard. Well, now I want to watch this. It's really great. Because and one thing that he says is he says, you know, so many pro-choice people like, oh, these pro-life protesters are so frustrating. They're so annoying. It's like, you know, they believe a children that babies are being killed. Right. What do you want them to be like? "Uh, Yeah, it's a bummer, I guess. Whatever. And just (laughs) and so like it it was really interesting. And though he keeps he keeps repeating that, like, yes, I do think that this is a fine thing. Um, And he and he actually makes a point that I've been making for a long time, which was the the and I don't remember if I made it on our episode recently where he talks about, uh, the, the watchword for a long time was safe, legal, and rare. Mm -hmm. And if you're a pro-life person, you say like, well, why rare? I mean, I guess you don't, the, the, the circumstances that would necessitate this, you want those to be rare, but when it comes right down to it, the procedure itself, if it, who cares if it's just a procedure, then who cares? And that's what he is. That's what he is saying. And he, wow. Yeah. It's, it's really a a fascinating, and uh, there are other really interesting parts that, that people have talked about. People have talked about his thing about Achilles, um, and that, uh, (laughs) but I think he was talking with his daughter and cause the idea was Achilles mom, like held him by the ankle and dipped him in and and he's, you know, uh, basically impervious. And then his daughter's like, well, why couldn't she have just dipped him in again? And he said, that is 
the child's mentality a hundred percent, which is you do everything you can for this kid. And then the one thing you missed is exactly what's going to ruin their lives. And so, uh, I thought that was funny, but I really, and I thought he said he had some really good things to say politically. And I do think that just, just when I, just when I think I've heard everything he can say, because after a while, his, his shtick, for lack of a better term, it's not that it got old. It's that like, okay, I, I, I know what you are now, mm-hmm. but I think as would, as unsurprisingly would happen in modern day, um, I feel like the tone of the country right now could really energize a lot of comedians because it's not merely that he says stuff that I think is interesting. He also makes it funny mm-hmm. and and the laugh, it's the kind of laughter that you kind of choke on at certain points. Cause you're like, ah, oh, fuck man. But it's, it is, he's, he's in top form. He's not phoning it in. And so many comedians at his level that I've loved for years. And I won't, I won't even say names cause some of them have been on this show. Uh, and some of them <laughs> have, uh, I've just loved for a long time. They're never bad. Mm-hmm. They're not even mediocre. They're just what they have been. And so for him to find a new way to still be himself, but find new topics to explore and do it in a way that no other, the few other comedians or commentators would do is something that I really liked. And, uh, and it's a good special all around. I, I highly recommend it. So okay. lastly, lastly for I'll, both I'll of throw us it to you, it's back. The amazing race is finally back and apparently Thursdays at 10 PM. I didn't even know the 10 PM thing. Cause I can never watch it. Uh, okay. Because right, we're always we, recording we record Thursday nights. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's, I mean, 10 PM is not abnormal for a TV show to be on. But it's usually a drama, isn't it? Yeah. I'm saying like Thursdays at 10 PM on CBS, that's the old CSI time slot, which is like, because that show had like murders and decomposed bodies and yeah. stuff like amazing race has always been kind of family friendly. That's why like Sundays at eight or Sundays at nine was a lot made a lot more sense. I know they've been picked up for several more seasons, but it doesn't feel like it when they go from Sundays to Fridays to Thursdays at 10, it feels like they don't know what to do with this show. I don't know what time slots even mean anymore in this uh, DVR world, but, um, Thursdays at 10 is a better time slot than Friday nights. That's true. At least traditionally. Yes. Um, so whatever, that's not the point. The point is, thank God this show's back. And, um, this is a gimmick season, which, um, uh, I'm okay with, uh, I think it's yielding mixed results for me so far. Well, there's only been one episode. <laughs> I know, but still, um, and the gimmick this year is instead of teams of two, or they are doing teams of two, but instead of people coming as teams of two, it's a bunch of individuals who find out on the day, on the first day, the person they're going to be paired with, but they're not, that's the thing. They're not paired with them. Right. They, they do pick one person picks the other yeah. based on a limited, what a limited amount of what they've seen of this person. Yeah. They, they basically had, they had one challenge yeah. that they all had to do individually. And then the order they finished that challenge was the order they got to pick. Right. And also their performance in that, in that challenge was all that anyone else knew about them. So yeah. based on how they did in that one challenge. And of course, based on each person who got to pick sort of preconceived you know, ideas yeah. of what they want their teammate to be. Um, um, that's, that's what they did. Now here's the no. first thing that surprised me. Okay. Uh, or I don't know if it did surprise me. I want to hear what you think. All right. Um, there's only one all male team 
and only one all-female team. That did. It's something that occurred to me only after. Um, and I wonder if it's just, you know, I mean, these people are, have probably seen the show before. And I think they probably recognize, like, okay, some of these, cha- not challenges, whatever you want to call them. Um, they, some of them are going to require strength. Some are going to require some agility. And I think some people thought, all right, so we've got the guy for strength. We've got the woman for agility. Let's go with that. Um, although historically guy teams tend to do pretty well. Yeah. Uh, and that certainly bared out in this first episode that yes. those two guys killed that challenge. Yeah. yeah. They are both very athletic. Uh, yeah. Even though the shorter guy doesn't look it necessarily, yeah, but he's a snowboarder. Yeah. So like he, he does, he might not be able to like lift stuff, but the other guy's got that handled. Um, but yeah, I think they're going to do very well. I think the, the first, the, the guy who finished the challenge first, and then he picked the number three person. He picked the woman who finished highest. Right. I don't know if that was intentional, but that was something I noticed immediately. I think so. Yeah. I think he specifically wanted a woman because she might be able to do things he couldn't. Uh, but also he's a, is he a cop and she's a firefighter? I know she's a firefighter, but I can't remember if he's the cop. There's a couple, I th- aren't there a couple of cops? Yeah. Yeah, there are a couple. This is the frustrating thing with... Because there's with, the Boston... The Boston guy's a cop, is that right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, but the other guy, this guy we're talking about... Yeah. ...who finished first, he's the gay cop, right? Is he? I, I don't... See, yeah, I guess that's one episode where we're getting confused. It's, Maybe I'm it's wrong. It's tough. It's, and it's it's always difficult to talk about the first episode because you, all, you often wind up saying like, well, you know the black guy and the white girl. I like them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard oh, not right. to think in those terms. Those, gay by cop, the way, black guy, the black guy and the white girl, everyone's favorite, favorite immediately. As, they, as they should be. They are the most fun and they clearly yeah. are like best friends immediately. Yeah. I love it. They both love the show and they just have a, an energy that, that is infectious. Um, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they, they clearly got along are getting along very well and they did fairly well. Yeah. Um, the team I want to talk about, there's two teams I want to talk about. Okay. I want to talk about the team that went home, which I was glad they did, sure. frankly, because they were annoying me by exactly, and exactly what she said in their post, uh, elimination sort of wrap up when she was like, we maybe should have challenged one another a bit more. And yeah. that's exactly what they were. They Absolutely. were both like, they basically found the two most easygoing people, put them yeah. together and they didn't care enough yeah. to get the thing done. <laughs> It's almost like they're like, we're on this show, the amazing, uh, can't remember the last word. Um, <laughs> the amazing stroll. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Uh, and then the other team I want to talk about is the super nerdy Asian guy who picked the, um, the, the tall blonde woman to be with him. And they, I, I so, so deeply want them to find common ground and work well together. I do too. I, I really want that because that would be in fitting with what I think I've always, uh, since it's a new, a new season, I'll say this again, my whole thing about the amazing race and why it's so great is that it works on multiple levels of, um, uh, you know, and this season, even more so, uh, usually you've got people, Americans going to other parts of the world. Yes. Engaging with other parts of the world in, basically learning that there are commonalities everywhere mm-hmm. and becoming more aware of the world around them. And what also happens is we, the viewers have that experience. Sure. 
as the more time we spend with people that, you know, we think, uh, Oh God, you know, the first episode we're like, Oh, this person's so annoying. But when you're, when we're forced to watch them for 13 weeks. And I think part of this is to the credit of the editors who have generally been pretty humane in the way that they've edited the show. I think, um, we come to see them more as people. And now this time you've got the third level of that where you've got the people within the teams potentially coming to find common ground over the course of the show. And so these two are like the most mismatched. Like, I feel like this guy, uh, I mean, I feel like maybe it's just the way they edited it, but it seemed like he just wanted to pick a a woman he was attracted to, which is unfortunate. Isn't that kind of what he said? Yeah. Um, Kind of. Uh, um, and, uh, she clearly came on the show cause she's a, you know, a very, uh, athletic and, um, and she's an intelligent woman, but not a, yeah. not like, not like he, not his kind of, you know, not his antisocial intelligence. Right. Um, uh, th- he's clearly not the kind of person she saw herself, you know, being yeah. matched up with. And so she's having to deal with that. Um, and I really hope that they, learn over the course of this i'm wondering if he can i mean his that's what i was gonna say uh, is because i was like uh, uh, sorry uh, no, I'll let you, but like uh, i was like oh okay i know reality tv they're playing this up this guy's not that much of a dork but then when he tells her when you get to the traffic circle you're gonna make a 135 degree turn i was like what the fuck dude like yeah. that's not how people talk that's that's what got me is that like he is smart on a level that seems to keep him from not merely relating to other people, but understanding how people yeah. relate to anything. Yeah. There is, exactly. there is a certain degree of common sense required on this show. And I'm not saying he doesn't have common sense. It's that stuff like that, even he's right. 135 degree turn. No one thinks like that. Yeah. That is not helpful at all. You can be 100% right and 100% wrong at the same time. And I think, yeah, I I don't think he's going to be able to adapt. I don't blame him. It's not, you know, he's not being an asshole. I just wonder if he just has it in him to, and maybe, you know, maybe she'll, maybe she'll, she'll start to change him. You know, that's what I'm hoping. But, uh, um, that is what I'm hoping, but I'm definitely, yeah, I, I do feel a little bit sorry for her because she didn't get to pick and now she's yeah. with someone who's not, um, she's someone she that, wanted to be with and yeah, she could have excelled uh, and she might still, she might still, um, it would be a really nice narrative if this turned out well. Yeah, I hope it does. But, um, but the, yeah, the, the, obviously the, the, we both know we already said who our favorite team is. Yeah. It's gotta be everyone's it's, it's team. everybody's favorite team. All right. Now we've talked about the premise. Let's talk a little bit about gameplay. Okay. I feel like in the years that I've been watching amazing race, which is pretty much up to nearly all of the years that it's been on. Um, I feel like people abandon challenges when there's the, I, I, I honestly, I, I never remember which one's a roadblock and which one's a detour. Okay. Yeah. But the one where there's two, I feel like abandoning the challenge and going to do the other, like let's, we can't do this. Let's go do the other challenge. Yeah. I feel like that has increased in, in, in the past years. I think it has as well. And it happened like, I think this time you had a team abandon one, try the other and then go back. Right. Yeah. Didn't you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know why it, it costs you time. Uh, This one, I guess I got the impression that 
the two challenges were very close to one another, which makes it a little bit. They do look to be. Yes. Yeah. It makes it a little bit more uh, understandable because often like people will abandon challenges and say, let's go do the other one. And it's on the other side of town. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't spend that amount of time on the race. It's t- It's really tough though, because you know, you could be working on a challenge for hours. I mean, I, th- we've seen episodes where they start in the day mm-hmm. and then it is nighttime. Yeah. And you know, and you never know if the one you picked, it sounded easy enough, but it's very difficult. And you know what? The other one sounded difficult. Maybe it's actually easy and we could, it's like, okay, we've been doing this for 45 minutes. It's not happening. We could do the other one in 15 and not even know that. Mm -hmm. So like, there's always that chance. Um, and I've seen, and, and these are people that I think know the show. And so I think they see that usually one is harder than the other. And if somebody is struggling, then they must, there must be something in them that says, well, this one's really hard. So maybe the other one really isn't that hard. So let's do this. Um, and nobody wants to be, nobody wants to be the person who is so stubborn that they wind up doing this thing until all hours of the night. Yeah. So I could, I could see it being that I see. Yeah. And this one in particular, I think was kind of deceptive because I think the bow and arrow one probably sounded easier. Yeah. And especially the rowing one, probably the first time you do it, seemed impossible yeah uh but the rowing one gets easier as you go and the bow and arrow one doesn't necessarily uh you know you might only have a certain amount of (laughs) dexterity with a bow and arrow yeah um uh, i i can see it but i I, it does every time someone makes that decision uh i always want to second guess them sure yeah absolutely um but yeah i've never shot a bow and arrow myself and it did like people did seem to be having more difficulty with it than I would have thought they would have. But it's also because you're standing in a rocking canoe. That might be a big part of it. Um, I have shot a bow and arrow and I'm not terrible at it. It seems easy. I mean, by which I mean the principle is easy. You can at least get the arrow to go. Right. You know, but for some people it just like fell straight down. And I remember thinking like, look, I'm no, I'm not, I don't claim to David, I don't claim to be a world-class athlete, but even I can make a bow and arrow. I can at least make it go horizontal. Yeah. You know, (laughs) and shoot in front of me. It Um, might not hit the target, but it's not going to fall, fall to my feet. Um, the last team I want to address is the team that almost came in last. Um, the bearded guy. Yeah. That guy, he seemed, he's, he has this sort of like, Oh, I quit my regular job and now I'm a butcher and I'm like, doing it for myself i'm like this diy you know yeah. like tattooed guy i think he's like a he's like low-key a fucking baby i was getting really annoyed with him i was getting annoyed with how easily he was getting annoyed with his teammate sure um that i i i yeah he's uh, he was on he's already on my nerves uh i'm holding i'm reserving judgment just because the circumstance let me ask you this it has been a while since the last season was on yeah. I mean, how long. long has it been a year? Yeah. Okay. So I don't remember the show being this stressful. Really? Did this, did this season, did this episode seem more stressful than the average episode? No. I've, or have I just forgotten? Maybe you've just forgotten because I've definitely had, 
I've been, there have been multiple episodes of the amazing race where I've watched the last couple of acts standing on my feet because I'm so stressed out by it. Okay. But I, I stayed seated the whole time. Uh, I, this I, time. I do wonder if it's just, I, I empathized with these people so much and this idea, like the, like the woman that we're talking about, who's, who's paired with the, the, the math guy. Mm-hmm. Um, she came to do well. Now, obviously everybody came to do well, but everyone probably has a fair amount of understanding of their own limitations. And she's someone I think who understands I I could do very well here. Mm -hmm. And so for her to be paired with someone through no fault of her own, she didn't pick him. The show didn't pick him. He picked her and there's nothing she can do about it. And so if you're the bearded guy and you're able to keep the canoe afloat, but the person in front of you can't and you fall over twice, it's going to be very frustrating. It must be very frustrating to be like, I, I can do this. Yeah. This stranger can't. And maybe that was part of, cause he said, how do you get to be 24 years old and you've never held an oar? And I'm, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm 34. I've never held an oar. The fuck am I doing? I don't, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't deliverance. Like, uh, it's very strange. I, it's, uh, I guess I'm compared. I guess I'm some kind of outdoorsman compared to you. <laughs> yeah, I've, you held, I've held oars before. It's a pretty low bar. Yeah. I know. <laughs> well, uh, it's, yeah. Um, but at the same time, to say that, like, how do you get to be 24? I don't know. In 2017, probably pretty easily. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's when you make jumps like that. Yeah. Where it's because you don't have to go that far to say, how do you get to be 24 and not be exactly like me? <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm very glad it's back. I'll say I, that I did miss it. I'm very much looking forward to watching the season. And I'm very much looking forward to a season of the last segment of the movie journal being a mini podcast about amazing race. Yeah. Cause it's, it's one it's, of my favorite things. It's good because it lets the listeners know when to stop listening. Yeah, exactly. Except maybe one or two who are like, Oh, thank God. Finally, someone yeah. can say what I've always been thinking. Yeah. So if you have comments, uh, you know, put them on the website. Absolutely.